It is week four of an extended Advent series uh, where we're working through the O Antiphons, uh, these ancient liturgical poems, and this morning is O Dayspring, uh, wherein Christ is likened to the rising sun, uh, the coming down. And so I'm going to read the Antiphon, and then um, Tristan, I think, will read our scripture this morning. O radiant dawn, splendor of eternal light, sun of justice, come shine on those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death. Tristan. Today is from Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Tristan. When was the last time you were scared of the dark? Uh, my last time was probably about two months ago. Um, I was by myself in Louisville, staying at Rob and Kathy's new house. Many of you know Rob and Kathy, they moved to Louisville. They weren't there though, they were just letting me use their house and I was alone. It's in the middle of nowhere in Kentucky, which is kind of scary for a San Franciscan, right? Um, I got back to the house really late, like 11.30, but I was wired, I was on Pacific time, and so I didn't really go down to my basement bedroom until about 1 a.m. And when I went downstairs to the lower level, I saw that the back door to the outside had been unlocked all day, and I thought that I had locked it. Um, I'm pretty sure it was probably the cat sitter who came in and just left it unlocked. But still, it just creeped me out, right? Um, you're in a house by yourself that you're not familiar with. now. A younger, more proud Dave would have tried to just shake off the fear and then just laid awake in bed for a long time. But I decided I didn't have time for that. It was already late. I needed to go to bed. And so quite nonchalantly, without embarrassment, I locked my bedroom door. I put my luggage and a bunch of other stuff in front of the door. And then I decided that wasn't enough. And so I looked around and there was a chair and I jammed a chair under the door knob, right? Um, Jason Bourne style. Um, and then I just climbed in bed and said a prayer and slept like a baby. It was great. Um, assuring myself that a duffel bag and a chair from Ikea was going to stop a murderer that was intent on killing me. Um, it's crazy how stuff like that, little stuff like that. Now, I, like a younger me, a more proud me, would have like laid awake in bed and then eventually done that, you know, in like 30, 40 minutes. But at this, I was like, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and do it right now and then I'll be fine. Um, it's funny, though, how from experience, I knew that prayer and reason uh, would not be enough to settle my body and my heart, right? I find it so hard to pray myself out of anxiety, 
right? I need to do something, um, anything, no matter how ridiculous, to assure myself, to slow my mind down, which is why nighttime is often the hardest time to be anxious, right? Because it's the time to not do things, like you're not supposed to do anything. It's the time for sleeping, trusting my safety and well-being to the only one who never sleeps, right? But so often I can't sleep. I can't trust. And so I become in vain the one who never sleeps. And that's no good for anybody. The book of Isaiah, where we are living for these uh, seven weeks, um, are written down for a people struggling to trust God during a period of darkness. Cultural darkness, political darkness, economic, spiritual, uh, divine darkness even, divine silence. And in Isaiah 7 through 9, where we will be, um, some of the most famous Christmas passages are here. The prophet in these chapters contrasts two different ways of coping with darkness. Um, I, and I say cope on purpose because in Isaiah, all you can do with darkness is cope. Uh, darkness isn't something you can fight. Um, we can't make the morning come any quicker. God is in control of darkness and light, right? God decides when it begins, when it ends, who it involves. That's his domain. And so we can only wait and cope while we wait. You can cope with darkness my way by trusting in ridiculous things like Ikea chairs and duffel bags in armies and treasuries, or you can cope with it by trusting God, by trusting him and waiting for him, because only God is light. In an advent, we remember that lifting the darkness is his job. That's his job, and a job he will certainly do, a job that he has promised to do. And so this is what we'll see in Isaiah 7 through 9. Let's pray, and then we'll dig into this story. Dear Father, we are thankful that you are a God of light, and we acknowledge that all of us uh, get scared of the dark um, at times, uh, either when it's physically dark um, outside or when it's emotionally, spiritually dark, when our future is uncertain, when we don't know what is around us. It creates fear in us. And so we long for the day when you eradicate fear, when, you, uh, when it is the eternal day um, and there is no night anymore because Christ is here and he um, shines forever. But in the meantime, uh, we all face uncertainty, we all face hardship, um, and we ask for you to increase our faith this morning. Help us to learn from these scriptures and to be encouraged uh, to hope in the coming light of Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Isaiah is a challenging book to read, um, as a lot of the prophets are, um, but here it's because there are multiple settings and times, um, all in the same book, and the author bounces back and forth between them all the time, um, without a lot of transition. Um, there are three settings, uh, really, that you can identify. So first, you have the original setting, where Isaiah, Isaiah is mostly a collection of speeches and conversations that were actually delivered, like Isaiah spoke these things, and the original setting is when those speeches were delivered, when they were first uttered by Isaiah. Um, and this timeline occurs before the fall of Judah and Israel. Um, and so that first timeline is, in essence, Isaiah warning God's people, there is a terrible event that's coming for you, and this is why. Um, I'm going to tell you how you could 
avoid this happening, but you're not going to listen to me. That's the ministry of Isaiah, where he's going he's to warn them, and they're not going to respond. Um, so basically, he is predicting the future. That's the ministry that Isaiah is given in Isaiah 6, to be a prophet who no one listens to. So timeline one is the story of how God's people are cut down and why, with only a stump remaining. And if we're talking about this in terms of darkness and light, this is the move from the twilight of God's people into midnight, if you think about it that way. Timeline three in Isaiah is the surprising promise that God will return his people to the, to the light. He will return them to their former glory and beyond. So there are sections of Isaiah that forecast this really bright and beautiful, wonderful future when God's people will be fully restored. So even though Isaiah's present ministry is warning the people in front of him, warning Judah of the coming crisis, he's all the time qualifying that warning and saying, but in the future, it will all be made right. And so a lot of times this happens immediately, one verse after the other. He just like jumps back between timeline one to timeline three. So compare Isaiah three and four. So first, timeline one, <clears throat> Isaiah three eighteen. in that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents. Um, there's a lot of opulence um, that uh, Israel faced, and this is talking about it. The pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn, empty. She shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. So this is timeline one. This is the coming judgment. But immediately, the very next verse, he jumps to timeline three, verse two, chapter four, verse two. In that day... Same phrase, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel, and he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its mist by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat, for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. And so he's constantly going back between these predictions of judgment and predictions of restoration, sort of throughout the whole book. And this happens constantly. Uh, timeline two is the in-between. After the fall, but before the restoration, there is a long gap, centuries even. And this actually ends up being the primary audience for the book of Isaiah, because Isaiah knew his original audience isn't going to listen to him. And so his ministry was mainly aimed at this remnant of people that are waiting there. Um, he delivers these speeches. He writes them down for this people in the middle, timeline two. The people who now live after Isaiah in a devastated Jerusalem, and they're asking themselves, what just happened? I thought we were the people of God. 
right? Why did this happen? Is it because God has abandoned us? Is it because God isn't actually God, and I've been duped this whole time? Is it because um, we should forget the Exodus? Should we forget about the promised land? Should we forget about the promises to, to David? Is it over? Should we just become Assyrians and follow after their gods, or Persians, then Greeks and Romans? And so Isaiah is written down in answer to these existential questions, um, both explaining the terrible event that had happened as actually not evidence of God's absence, but evidence of his power, of his holiness, and reminding them that their story is not over yet, that this is an in-between and there is a coming day. Salvation is coming. Zion will be restored. And so they needed the bad news so they could understand what caused the devastation. They needed the good news so they would not lose hope. As we've said throughout this series, Advent is this moment of darkness. It's this nighttime between the timeline one and timeline three. It's a time of waiting, as Leah uh, led us this morning. If darkness is forever, all would be lost. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But Advent embraces the faith that all is not lost, right? The dawn is coming. And so Psalm 35 says, For God's anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. The light is coming. The morning is coming. Isaiah was written to the exiled people of Israel. It's written to us to remind us the world, why the world is the way it is, to remind us of God's promises and to remind us to wait. And in Isaiah 7 through 9, we move pretty clearly through timeline 1, 2, and 3, respectively. And in, in these chapters, for each timeline, Isaiah contrasts a way of faith and a way of unbelief in a helpful way. Um, and as I said, Advent focuses mostly on timeline 2, so that's sort of where we dwell and sit. But we move through these various moments in our life all the time. Um, where sometimes uh, we might be anticipating entering darkness, uh, sometimes we are enduring darkness, and sometimes we are coming out of it. And so you might find yourself uh, in each of these chapters. So Isaiah 7. Uh, Isaiah 7, uh, timeline 1, he, it narrates his ministry to Ahaz, which is the king of Judah, the wicked king, uh, who has just learned, Ahaz has just learned about plans uh, between neighboring uh, rivals, Syria and Israel, the southern kingdom, to rise up against Judah. And so he's afraid, and the people are afraid. Isaiah 7-2, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And so the Lord sends Isaiah to offer encouragement. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jezeb, I don't know how to say that, your son, um, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, keep calm, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. Now, grammatically here, God is not here saying, be careful and keep calm. He is saying, be careful to keep calm. And there's a difference there. Be careful and to keep calm would mean that God is warning them to like do what you can, be mindful that there's this really scary enemy, and like be diligent about it, but don't get worked up about it. Stay calm while you're working. But be careful to keep calm means don't do anything. That's actually the instruction to Ahaz. It's like you are not supposed to do anything at all. 
The way of faith for Ahaz and the people in the face of these threats is doing nothing. That was the path to victory. To do nothing would lead to winning. To do something would actually lead to losing, um, which is what happens. Isaiah 7, 9, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. But Ahaz and the people are still scared, um, understandably so. Um, And God mercifully offers a sign to bolster Ahaz's faith, where he can see that Ahaz needs more encouragement. And so in verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, "'Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven.' But Ahaz said, "'I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test.'" And on the face, it kind of sounds pious. Um, It sounds like he doesn't need proof, but that's not what's happening here. Ahaz actually doesn't want proof of God's faithfulness. He's refusing it because proof would bind him to faith. And he's actually already come up with a plan in his mind on what he's going to do. In 2 Kings, we learn that Ahaz had sent messengers to the king of Assyria saying, I am your servant and your son. So he says this to a wicked king. He says, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And that's not all Ahaz does later in 2 Corinthians 16. It says, when King Ahaz went to visit Damascus to meet the king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus and he sent back to his priest a model and said, can you build this for me? And he did. He built it in the temple, in God's temple. He built a pagan altar um, and used it and worshiped uh, with it. And so in this, we we realize all this is going on in the background. And so Ahaz doesn't want a sign from God or from Isaiah. He wanted an excuse is what he wants. And this was his excuse to follow after the ways of the other nations. And sometimes in the middle of the night when I'm anxious, I actually push away prayer I actually don't want to pray. I don't want comfort. I refuse the signs God offers to me of his faithfulness, uh, which are everywhere. I'd rather have excuses. I'd rather have validation, self-justification. I want to keep my own schemes. I have plans of my own. And at some point, God's right to just kind of bow out of that situation. But he'll never leave me without a sign so that I am without excuse, that I know what I'm doing. I have to suppress the truth in order to avoid it. In Isaiah 7.13, that's what he does. Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so God offered a sign to encourage Ahaz that everything would be okay. But Ahaz refuses the sign, but God offers him one anyway. And he offers this great promise of Emmanuel, God with us. It's such good news, but it is not, it will not be good news for Ahaz. The tragedy is that Ahaz and all of Jerusalem won't be around to see Emmanuel. They won't be around to see God's presence, his faithfulness, the great Messiah, the promised Emmanuel would be born into a time of darkness. And so the promise continues in verse 14. 
we'll, we'll, I'll re- reread it. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel shall eat curds and honey, which is the food of poverty. When he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. So by the time he grows up, Israel, our Judah will be laid waste. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, before he is a young adult, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. But that's not all. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. That's timeline one. And we learn that people who trust God receive God's signs while people who trust themselves refuse God's signs and look for excuses. And so it's important for us to ask, are there signs from God that I am refusing, that are being revealed to me, but I'm just sort of pushing aside and ignoring? Are there words from him that I don't want to hear because I'm wrapped up in my own schemes? In chapter 8, Isaiah transitions to timeline 2, and so he's no longer addressing Ahaz because Ahaz has chosen his path, Um, So instead, he speaks to the faithful remnant, the few people who would remain followers of Yahweh. Ahaz had uh, the luxury of living in a time with a little bit of light left. He could have responded, but he doesn't. What do you do when you live in darkness, when there's no light? What does belief and unbelief look like then? And so Isaiah offers himself as an example. Isaiah 8, verses 11 through 13 For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Um, I love this verse because we live in a time like full of conspiracies, right? People talk about conspiracies all the time. It's a great passage to keep in mind. Do not call conspiracy what this people calls conspiracy. Um, and, And this is helpful, especially because these conspiracies that they're worried about are true. Um, the ones Ahaz is facing, Syria and Israel were actually conspiring against him. Um, Assyria was very much a dangerous empire. But Isaiah's point is that Syria, Israel, Assyria, they're not nearly as dangerous as the Lord. They are are so much smaller. They may have big armies, but God is the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts. And as we think about today, the Republicans, the Democrats, China, the economy, right? Your arch nemesis at work, whoever it is, even even if everything you read online is true, If that were to be the case, even if everything you suspect of that person or that future does happen, none of them are nearly as fearsome as the Lord, right? And so what should we do as people of faith? How should we live? The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, right? So that no matter what, we do what the Lord says. We wait for him to return, Um, and leave the outcome to him. His word is what matters. Even when we can't see his face, we have his word. Isaiah 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. This is the instruction of Isaiah to people in darkness. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. 
And so here Isaiah acknowledges that timeline two is a season where God's face is hidden. And that's super hard for God to hide his face. You might be in a time where you cannot see the Lord, where he is hidden from you. You can't feel him. Experientially, he is gone. And some, sometimes nights are like that, where I, I have spent many nights where I am trying to pray, and it feels empty. What do I do in those situations? Isaiah's encouragement is to bind yourselves to the testimony of God, to hold fast, to keep hoping, keep praying. Look to the story of God. Look to the testimony of his church. Look to the teaching. That's what the remnant does in the dark. What do others do in the dark? Necromancy. They seek information from the dead, Isaiah 8, 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? No, to the teaching, to the testimony. And so they're literally seeking counsel from dead people when they have God's word right there. And Isaiah is shocked. Why would they not ask God? We live in a city. My kids are always baffled when we uh, pass um, you know, people who uh, read tarot cards and, and um, those sorts of things. And you're like, you, are, you do wonder in a very expensive city, like, how do these places stay open? That rent is so expensive. I never see people in it. Um, why would we, especially as followers of God, seek out advice from places like that when we have God's word? And go to the teaching, go to the testimony. Because when we don't, when we refuse God's word, when we go to the dead, we are basically resigning ourselves to living in darkness forever. We're assuming that the darkness will always be. Literally, by appealing to necromancy, the people of Judah are choosing to consult with the dead, to identify and follow after darkness. It reminds me of like undersea or underground creatures who just lose the ability to see because they're just underground all the time. And so their eyes actually adapt to be useless. No need. They have no need for eyes because it's always dark. And in verse 20, here it ends, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They have no coming sun. They have no coming daylight. It is always darkness. That's what faithlessness is here. That's what unbelief is, adapting away from the light, casting aside sight, running away from the dawn, refusing signs, ignoring testimony. In this world, in Isaiah's world, it actually takes effort to not believe. It does take effort to believe, but here in this scheme, like, you actually have to work hard to disbelieve the Lord. Remember Isaiah's counsel, be careful to stay calm, do nothing, just wait. You don't have to do anything. Dawn will come. It always comes. The night never lasts forever. I have a, a child who can get really caught up in emotions and fears, especially at night, and I have often needed to assure her this always passes. Like, remember, it always passes. 
right? There has never been a night where you have not fallen asleep, right? There has never been a night where your sadness has lasted forever. Morning has always come. And in those moments, I'm talking to myself, right? The morning always comes. We only need to stop, remember, and wait. That's what faith does in the darkness. I learned something cool this week about church architecture. Uh, Traditionally, cathedrals, I didn't know this, but they have been built so that you enter from the west side and sit facing east. And even when geography doesn't allow for a church to be built that way, so we can all think of churches that aren't built that way, um, religious architects will still call the altar side of the building the liturgical east. So it might not be the actual east, but it's the liturgical east. And that's because the posture of faith is always aimed at the dawn. It's always aimed at the return of Christ and the rising sun. We speak, sing, listen, and commune, anticipating ever looking for Christ's return. In a happy accident, our setup here at New Traditions faces east. You're facing east, which is cool. Um, And so when you sing, and when you speak, when you sit here, when you approach the communion table in a few minutes, You will approach it facing east, taking communion and faith, believing that Christ will come again, looking for it with your eye on the horizon, wanting it to happen, anticipating, expecting it to happen, right? Not just believing it, but with the orientation of your body being towards it, like it could happen any minute. And while the life of faith involves work and community and relationships, we always need to keep that eye on the horizon, hopeful, excited for the sunrise when it hits. And how do we do that? We meditate and return to passages like Isaiah 9, which shifts out of the mode of darkness into the day, right? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Notice how strong Isaiah's faith is that he puts future realities in past tense. It's as if it's already happened in Isaiah's heart. He can see it, he can taste it, he can feel it. So the faith of Isaiah here in timeline three is like the faith of the moon. The moon doesn't shine of its own, but it reflects the sun. That's what it does. So in the dead of night, the moon is still able to shine. And as I was thinking about that, this morning, I realized like when the moon is shining, it, assure, it assures me that the sun is shining. It assures me that the sun is coming. It is going to rise. And not only that, that the sun is shining right now, even though it's dark. The sun is still bright. It is still burning with glory. God is still active, even in the night. He is warming the earth. He is sustaining life. His glory is holding the earth in place with its gravitational pull, even if I can't see it. And so the faith of Isaiah, the ministry of Isaiah, of the prophet, is to be the moon and to be high enough to be able to look out and say, you can't see the sun, but I can see the sun. 
I can see it. It is active right now. It is coming. It is making its way here. This is the faith of Isaiah 9. And so in chapter 7, faith receives God's signs. In chapter 8, faith holds to God's revealed word. In 9, faith points to the coming dawn. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. This is what's coming. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. I can see it. I can see our community as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And so no longer will the church be a tiny remnant hiding from enemies. We are multiplied, numbering thousands upon thousands from every tribe and nation and tongue with joy and gladness as at the harvest, so that when Christ returns, we will be eternally dividing the spoil of God's blessing. Never worry that there won't be enough. Never having to sort of sneak or be concerned. and like We'll just be giving it out constantly. That's what Isaiah points to in Isaiah 9. Because verse 4, the yoke of our burden, the staff for our shoulder, the rod of our oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And so what oppresses you today? Is it family dysfunction, a medical diagnosis, grief, anxiety, depression, past failures, guilt and shame, secret sin? What oppresses you? God will break it when he comes again. That rod will be broken What oppresses the world? Violence and poverty and greed, objectification, nihilism, hate, idolatry. At the rising sun, Jesus will forever lift the world's burdens. He will break the rod of our oppressor. He will push back the darkness. There will be no more need for instruments of war, no need to arm ourselves. And so verse 5, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire because we won't need it anymore. How could this be true? Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. None of this we can achieve ourselves. So many people have tried. But Isaiah points forward to the one person who can save us, who is coming, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Son of God made flesh. He who is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord of hosts is such a fearsome term, right? The Lord of armies is what that is. But what does the Lord of hosts do? He brings salvation. He brings peace. He brings comfort. He brings restoration. He brings harvest. He brings abundance. As these promises are read over you, can you feel the light flood your heart? Can you feel darkness lift? I can almost... I almost have a physical reaction to these verses. Friend, 
Don't refuse God's signs. Don't refuse his testimony. Don't resign yourself to living in the dark. Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of life. Can you let Isaiah 9 make your eye healthy? So that everything you see is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light in you is darkness, how great is it? If the wisdom that we seek and are after is the wisdom of the dead, like, don't do that. Ask God to help you see the world through eyes of light. You are children of light. Ask God to give you the faith of the moon, which looks ahead and sees the sun and reflects that truth to everyone around. Turn your eyes, turn your hearts and your minds and your bodies to the east. Anticipate his coming. Call for him. Say every day, come, Lord Jesus, come, come, rising sun. O radiant dawn, splendor of eternal light, son of justice, come shine on those who dwell in darkness. That is our prayer for ourselves and also for the world that we're in. Come, Jesus, and shine on those who dwell in darkness in the shadow of death. Micah says that he will come and the rising sun will come and bring healing in its wings. Advent looks forward to that future day when the Lord will come like the rising sun. Advent is also when we celebrate Christ's first coming when he came as the promised Emmanuel. Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Such an important and beautiful promise. God with us in the flesh, the promised Savior. This week, though, I was struck reading it in its original context. Right? It is this monstrous promise is given in a conversation with Ahaz, probably the most wicked king in the entire Old Testament, uh, like Jewish or not, right? A king known for corruption. He dismantled parts of the temple. He's known for sacrificing his own son on Yahweh's altar. A king who didn't want to be saved by God. He wanted to be saved by Assyria. He wanted to be saved through necromancy. That's where he pitched his tent. And in this context, God says, you don't want a sign, but I'm going to give you one anyway. And if you were Isaiah watching this, you think lightning's about to strike, right? That's what I would have done, right? If I were God, man, in rage, I would have committed myself to a sign of violence against this man of terror, of vindictive justice, but God is not like me. And so he says, you don't want a sign. Here's my sign. I will send my only son to you. I will send him into darkness, into poverty, into violence, so that you can be saved. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. First John 4, 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. 
In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so even Ahaz's great wickedness couldn't turn back God's greater commitment to save his people. This is how deep God's mercy goes. It's how far his grace reaches. That's how powerful the light is. And that's how certain that we can be that the morning will come. The dawn will come with healing in its wings. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful for your promises and your character, which is sure to keep those promises. There is no universe where you will not come again. The sun will rise. Father, we're thankful for the signs that you give us and when we're scared. We're thankful for the testimony that we have in your word and in each other and across history. And we're thankful for the people in our midst uh, who have the faith of the moon, who can reflect to us that Christ is alive now, that he's coming, but that right now he's at work, that he's keeping us warm and he's giving us life and he's holding us together. Father, would we be a people that always faces our body eastward, that's always looking ahead, to the horizon, expecting Jesus to come again. And we do pray that you would come and shine your light on the people who dwell in darkness, on us and everyone we know and love and beyond. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.